Tony Florio here coming to you from the streets of San Francisco. Welcome to the pilot episode of Flow Real Talking Stories. My first guest is Mr. Vincent Kukalikio. Vinny, as I've known him for all these years, has always been a nonconformist. Always asking questions, always questioning everything. And he is going to be 85 on September 4th, 2015, which is actually tomorrow. And uh, what a guy, man. Super awesome, funny. So many stories in his 85 years. And you know what? I'm just going to let him say the rest. But please excuse the uh, sound quality. Uh, this is my uh, first pilot episode. But as they say in the creative world, better done than perfect. Without further ado, I'd like to present to you the bad boy in a good way. The odd fella, Mr. Vincent Kukalikio. Flow Real TV. This is Tony Flow Real, and I'm here with Vince Kukalikio. We're here in Sonoma County at the Corbell Champagne Winery. With Vince here, it's been so awesome, man, to know you over the years. And uh, Flow Real TV is all about talking stories, so you got plenty of them. You're gonna be 85. September. September next month. Yes. And uh, let's start with the year I was born. The year you were right. born. Right. I was one of these unfortunates to be born through 1930 during the real depression, not this Republican bullcrap from the recession. <laughs> we were poor. My parents were immigrants from Italy and we were living in the uh, North Beach area of San Francisco, which was predominantly Italians living there. Of course, I didn't know I was an Italian because we all talked English except for my mother. She was never, never became a citizen because she came from Italy and she never learned how to speak or talk uh, uh, English but she knew how to speak Italian. Okay, and this is how it got started. We were poor, very poor. Uh, we didn't have any toys to play with. So my mother used to cut the pockets out of my pants so we'd have something to play with. <laughs> <laughs> that joke always cracks me up every time you say it. Now you'll find that I'm Getting back to being serious, <laughs> even though it was a depression and we were poor, I never remember going back to bed hungry because we had the best food available before the uh, restaurants knew that Italian food was the best. And uh, I was born into a family, I had one brother and one sister and I don't know how my father did it but we were all five years one month apart <laughs> I guess that's all my mother could could have you know, down to the, the dot huh right wow right, yes I mean times are rough and uh, so this is the atmosphere I grew up with I wasn't born in a hospital but I was born in a flat uh, on 108 Valparaiso it was a street, but they called it an alley. And us kids, because we were rough and tough, were called the alley rats. And nobody would ever come into our area unless they had to pay tribute, we let them in. We were tough. Of course, I was a runt of the, of the litter. I still am, as far as that goes. I never got any taller than five foot two. <laughs> and all my friends were bigger than me. I was the boss. 
I was the leader. And I kept these guys in line. You're the gangster. Right, by using brute force, treachery, and I was able to run fast and get away from these guys. So that's how I got started. Went to public school, and uh, World War II started. And uh, if it wasn't for World War II, my dad and most Americans, they wouldn't have been. Well, that's it. I remember this story when you were in school, um, Catholic school, I believe, and the nun tried to oh, yes, reprimand yes. you. Yes. <laughs> I'm not very religious. In fact, I'm not religious at all. And what I mean by that is I don't accept the doctrine that there's this super duper guy that created the world and the planets. And when I went to Catholic school, the first thing they asked me in catechism, who was God? And the answer was God is the creator of heaven and earth. And as soon as I heard that, I got rid of religion because I couldn't understand if this guy created heaven and earth, he fouled up. <laughs> We're not all created equal. I'm only five foot and everybody else towers above me. And I resented that. And not only that, when I went to the movies and all these other uh, things, uh, everybody, you had to be six foot five and John Wayne-ish. And I was more Mickey Rooney, you know, Mickey Rooney style. But I survived. And it was one of the best times I ever had, as I can remember, as a child. Number one, we didn't have any toys. We made our own toys. We're not like these people who go around with punching little things like this. And if they want to know something, they push this and they get an answer. We had to find out the hard way. And the hard way was if you ask your mother, Hey, Mom, how come Sister Catalina has a big belly? She slapped in the back of the head and say, shut up. <laughs> it wasn't explained to us why she had a big belly. But nine months later, we saw this little kid running around. And I guess that's what happens. If you have a big belly, you have children later on. <laughs> so that's how I grew up. And it's one instance when I had to go to uh, my uh, things I had to learn in catechism. Uh, we used to go in the back of the church and the church I went to was St. Peter and Paul which was an old-fashioned Catholic church right in North Beach. That's where Joe DiMaggio married. Yeah, Joe DiMaggio married Mar and, and other, got married, yeah. Right, and other celebrities got married there and it was the uh, social large church and when I went there we had the priest come out and he would uh, say the mass first in Italian, and then he would say it in English. And all the, uh, uh, I, I don't know if the word kiss ass is, I shouldn't use that, but these people were allowed to sit in the front of the church. And uh, they, if they donated a few dollars, they got to all these holy glass, what do you glass, pictures on the wall so they got to sit in the front which was best for us because we sit in the back and as soon as he made the last moment we took off and went home <laughs> and the thing was what I liked about going there is my mother would give me a nickel to put in the poor box when they put that thing around and the thing was we had the nickel like this but we had a penny here <laughs> so we went like this dropped the penny and they thought we would drop that penny was for me to go to this little uh, uh, movie theater and we'd see four movies, two, two uh, cereals and get a bag of popcorn. But getting back to uh, what happened to me, as yeah. my friend here was talking about, we had this uh, thing we had to go through and uh, uh, and one of the things was the question and answer period. And uh, if you learned your lesson, you got a piece of Christmas candy, the hard Christmas candy, hard as a rock. And then you'd go up to the nun and you'd say, sister, uh, I learned my lesson and you'd have to recite it. 
and it should give you a piece of this rock hard candy. And so that was the story. That's how we did it. But one time, sister had to go out of the room, and she was a plump Italian sister at ru ruby cheeks, and the only thing you seen was their nose, their eyes, and their their chin. And half the time, we didn't know if they had any other body parts because <laughs> everything was covered up. So anyway, she left the room, and I sprung in action. I went up to her desk, opened up the drawer, opened up the lid of this candy jar, and I was gonna get maybe two pieces of candy. But Christmas candy all stuck together. It was 99% sugar and 1% flavor. So I stuck my hand in there, and I could hear her coming down the hallway. I went to stick my hand out, and I couldn't get my hand out because I wouldn't let go of the, ch the candy. So instead of getting one piece, I got a handful. So I got out of there, closed the drawer, sat down, and stuck it in my shirt. But the little Catholic girls, kiss asses that they were, snitched to me and told sister, whatever her hell name was, that I was stealing the candy. Oh, well, she was going to teach me a lesson. She took me in front of the class, told me to stick my hand out, and with the ruler, she's going to spack my open hand on my palm side. Well, I was a tough guy. That's not going to bother me. But what she did, she had this rule about 24 inches. She wasn't just going to smack me on my eyes. She told me to turn my hand over. And she hit me, or she was going to hit me, with the side of the ruler that had the brass lining in it. And I said, oh, I don't know if I can handle that. But I had to be tough to show those kids that I was tough. So I put my hand like that. And like Charlie Brown, at the last minute, I took my hand off when she came down and she fell on her face. And everybody in the, in the class laughed. And she was embarrassed and she took off. She took off. And uh, I took off too and I went home. And I told my mother, my mother was a saint. My dad did all the dis disciplining. And I said, you know, uh, the sister was gonna hit me and uh, and uh, I will let you know I chickened out and she said well you know you shouldn't do that you know but then my dad when he was gonna come first my brother was gonna discipline me he was five years older and then my father so I got it three ways I was gonna get disciplined for that one piece of candy anyway the nun told the priest the priest came to my house and the priest told my mother and my other relatives who lived by what a beast I was by doing all this pain to this fat Italian nun. Anyway, my dad came home from work and I was scared. I knew he was going to give it to me. And my dad used to shave with a straight razor. And so he had two straps, a leather strap. And then he had this other strap and he would shave. And when I did something wrong that they found out about, he hit me in the legs with this strap. But nine out of ten times, he would just scare me and say, you want to taste this? You want to taste me? And I'd take off. But this particular day, that nun falling on her face, that, that was kind of something a little more out of the ordinary. So I told him what happened, you know, and told him the, the story. And he said, come on, you come with me. I said, oh, when the hell's it going to take me down the basement? the basement we used to make wine down there and it was like a dungeon and no he took me to the uh, to the church of course no, there was no nuns there at the time he took me where the priest used to live and he got a priest and and the priest didn't know what the hell happened and my father explained to him my son was uh, trying to get a piece of candy and the nun fell down and well the priest took the nun's side I should never done this and then here I was waiting for my father. Oh, what's he gonna do to me? He's gonna hit me with that strap. And he took me home and he's, oh, before he took me home, he told that priest, he says, if you ever, if you ever are gonna try to discipline my son, you come to me first. I almost passed out. I said, oh my, my dad's on my side. Anyway, that's what happened. I went home and he, 
He says, no, he says, you know, he says, they were wrong. They're not supposed to do that. They're supposed to be kind and all this stuff. And I, I didn't know my dad felt that way. My dad never went to church or he never went to a confession and all that. And I can never figure out why. My mother did. Then he told me the story when he was in World War I. And uh, he was in the Italian army. And they were fighting the Austrians. And uh, he was part of a machine gun nest. And the machine gun nest in them days, the machine guns, the big ones, were water-cooled. And it took four people to operate one machine gun. There were the big guys who carried the ammunition. And the other two guys carried the water. And my dad was one of those guys who carried the water. And uh, he told me how rough it was in the trenches in World War I. It got so bad they were eating rats. So they had to eat was rats in the trenches. I couldn't believe that. Why would he eat a rat? There was no McDonald's in them days. So I guess they had to. <laughs> so anyway, uh, he ended up uh, getting malaria. And I never thought you could get malaria in Europe, but he did. And then he got wounded. He got all kinds of medals. And he was re recuperating in a hospital. And the uh, hospital... The, uh, the nurses were nuns, Catholic nuns. And this one particular Sunday, my dad wasn't feeling very good. He, he, he was sick, he was malaria and everything. So this little nun comes up to him and says, Salvatore, that was my father's name, Salvatore Giuseppe Colicchio. He says, you gotta go to mass. My father looked at her and said, I can't, I'm sick. Oh no, she says, you gotta go to, you gotta go to church. And uh, my father, being a calabrese, we're, we're sort of kind of hot-tempered, told her in Italian, go, mm-mm, yourself. <laughs> and she almost fainted. So she goes back and she gets the, uh, the doctor, tells the doctor that that guy is refusing to go to church. And so the doctor ends up in the ward, and there's my father, incapacitated. And he says to uh, my father, how come you don't want to go to church? He says, I'm, I'm sick and everything. So the uh, priest looks at his thing there and says, well, sister, he's sick. He, he don't have to go to church. You know, when he gets better, he can go. Oh, no, padre, father, he has to go to church. Otherwise, he's going to go to hell and all that. Well, from that day, my father gave up the Catholic religion. <laughs> and then he told me that's why he had no use for the church and all these Catholic people who went to church. Yeah, yeah. So that ended that. So were you always a nonconformist? Yes, I was always an nonconformist. Until you went to the military? or Even in the military. <laughs> um, uh, the farthest I ever got out of San Francisco, I lived in San Francisco all my life until I was 17 years old. And the farthest I ever got out of San Francisco was I used to go get on a streetcar and end up going to San Mateo County. They had a streetcar on the rails. And uh, that's the only, we have relatives. Just south of San Francisco. Yeah. Well, yeah, south. Yeah. And that's the farthest I've ever been. And then when I was maybe about 15, we had paisanos who lived up in Sacramento. And a paisano is not a relative, but a good friend, usually coming from the same town in the old country or someone, you know, you might have known over there. So we used to go up there, and that was an experience, quite an experience. I lived in Valparaiso. We go up this hill to Union Street, steep hill, and they had this special streetcar. It was a little small streetcar. You entered in the middle, and then if you were going... Uh, one direction, the guy that operated a streetcar, he'd be in that direction. If he were going the other way, like we used to go, to get down to Market Street, and we had to transfer and get another streetcar. We get on the streetcar, and it was like, um, I don't know what you call these little uh, cartoons that have these little dinky type streetcars. And that was fun. So we go down to Market Street, then we had to pay again to go on another streetcar. There's only two streetcars on Market Street, uh, the Municipal and the Market Street streetcar. And they were all run by Irishmen. And all these Irishmen, it comes to find out later, they all owned apartment houses. And uh, I don't want to say they were cheating on the fares, but 
everything was cash, so you had to give these people the money. So maybe they, through shrewd investments, they got to be owners of apartment house. But the words we're getting around was one for the customer and two for us on these guys. That's how it was. All right, we got to Market Street. Then we used to go to the ferry building. And that was another thing. That was a fantastic building. And in the ferry building, they had this, uh, this model of the bay of San Francisco. And it was a, like a block long. And it had all the hills of San Francisco there. And it was quite a sight. So we'd get there and we'd have to get a ferry boat. Get a ticket for a ferry boat to go to Oakland. And uh, we had this ferry boat ride. So we get on this ferry boat, and for me it was very interesting because once we're on the ferry boat, they had this little um, concession where you can get coffee and a, and, and, and a donut. And my dad used to buy me a donut, and that's the only time, unless I, I stole one, <laughs> that I had a chance to have a sweet donut. Because uh, growing up as Italian, we ate good food and the donuts were American. That, who the hell ate a donut? That's American. <laughs> Although we all lived here, we're all born here, we still born American. Yeah. So anyway, once we got to Oakland, we'd all go to the top of the ferry boat. And the ferry boat used to come in to, the, to where the, the boat had to, you know, get anchored. And we thought we'd never going to make it because the, the, the ferry boat was going pretty fast. But then they would tell the guy in the engine room to go with the engines backwards and we just glide into there the guy would throw over the line put the gangplank down and then we'd walk and get the train the train to go to Sacramento start off at 6 o'clock in the morning we still haven't got to Sacramento yet so we get on the train and uh, we had this old timer in, in, in Sacramento who used to meet us at the uh, Sacramento uh, train depot, which is part of old Sacramento today. And he had an old, old Ford pickup truck. My mother and father would sit in the front and I had to ride in the back and hold on for dear life. Well, that was another treat. Here I'm out in some other city, big city, Sacramento. <laughs> you know, I never, never knew I was in the capital of, of California. I never knew that. It was Sacramento, I used to call it. And, uh, my sister ended up marrying one of the Paisano sons. And then after that, many years later, when I had my first car, second car, I would have to take my family up there. And I enjoyed it. For me, it was like I was going to Oregon or some other state. It was all new to me. And, uh, and some of the kids I met up there, they, they weren't like the kids from San Francisco. They had their own words for certain things. and. But anyway, I got along with these kids, and uh, so that inspired you to, uh, to join the Navy. Well, yes, I wanted to see more than just go to Sacramento. <laughs> so at 17, so well, you were a dropout, right? Well, yes. Well, not so much a dropout. That's a bad word. <laughs> what happened? I was going to Balboa High School, and uh, I didn't seem to enjoy. Uh, the classes I had. The only class I enjoyed was history. I loved history. And gym. I liked gym too. But everything else was ridiculous. Silas Mariner, Macbeth, and all this garbage. That, where am I going to learn all this stuff? What's it going to do for me in getting a job or anything? It was bull. I, I didn't care for that. Well, anyway, to make a long story short, I end up being a low senior plus 15 which meant I didn't have enough credits to graduate with the rest of my classmates in 1948. Okay, I only like five credits. So anyway, I got tired of that. So the vice principal called me in his office and his name was Mr. Gibson. And he was kind of an effeminate person. I wouldn't say he was a fruity, I mean, I don't, I don't think he was <laughs> transgender or any of that. But he knew me because every other week I was sitting in his office for doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing. And the World War II was going on, and I was only 15. And he made this speech that there are uh, people out there dying for their country and all this, you know, and here you're off disgracing the American flag and all this. And he says, you know, he says, you, 
you're 17 years old now. And I said, yeah. He says, well, you know, if you get your parents' permission, you can join the, the armed forces. I said, what the hell is this guy going to do? Ship me off to war, get me killed? <laughs> you know, he want to get rid of me? So I said, oh, I didn't know that. But in the meantime, you had to go through the procedure and you had to go through continuation high school. Everybody had to do that. And I was out in the Mission District of San Francisco. And to get there, I had to take two streetcars to get there. And I think that I went there for one week. And I met a life of uh, guys like me. And we formed like a little comradeship. So we ended up, after I registered there, to go up to the Mission District by Balboa High School and go to the pool room and play pool. And my parents didn't know that. They didn't know I was doing that because they didn't even know I got kicked out because I used to sign all my report cards. <laughs> and my mother didn't know how, my dad was too busy. I used to sign all my report cards. So anyway, at 17, us, there was three of us and uh, my buddies. And before that, we, got, we all went down on Market Street, got this tattoo that says Buccaneer. And that was the uh, theme for the Balboa Buccaneers. It was a Hispanic theme. Okay. So we went down to the, the worst part of Market Street. It was by the waterfront and everything. We got the damn tattooed. The other two guys chickened out, not me. <laughs> got the tattoo. Tried to hide it from my mother, but she couldn't understand how I was getting blood on my t-shirts. <laughs> she did. Anyway, after that, I said, well, I, I think I'll go to, let's go down and join the Marines. We're all gung-ho. Because I used to look at all the, we didn't have tea, but I used to listen to all the uh, uh, newspaper. And at that time on Market Street, there was two uh, uh, movie houses. That's all they did was show a movie uh, news, no, no, uh, no shows. And so I was always hip on what was going on. And my brother at that time was already in the Navy and he was overseas. And uh, so I said, well, let's, let's all join the Marines. We'll show those Japs how tough we are. So I go down there. Then again, my two friends chicken out and I'm the only guy they interviewed. And uh, they asked me, what gang do you belong to? Because they saw this tattoo. I said, I don't belong to any gang. Anyway, to make a long story short, they said, well, you're only 5'2", and you only weigh 110 pounds. This was in 1948. And uh, they said, well... You sat there in World War II. No, during World oh, during War II. Yeah, during World War II. The war didn't end until uh, 1945. And they says, well, uh, you probably fatten up once you're in the service. I didn't. But anyway, so I got all the papers. I passed the physical. I passed the written test. And I took the papers home and I talked to my father when he came home. I didn't want to tell my mother because she stopped crying right away. And uh, so I told my father and he said, oh, he says, yeah, he says, why do you want to go in the Navy? He spoke broken English. I said, well, Papa, I says, Nick, Nick, that's Nicholas, that's the name of my brother. You know, he's in the Navy and all my, his friends were in the service and I want to help out. He said, that's the only way you want to go? <laughs> well, then I confessed. Ah, okay, he says. Where's the papers? I gave him the papers. He signed up. That next week, I went down there. They accepted me. He took me to the train station on 3rd Street. And uh, about four hours later, I was in San Diego going through boot camp. Wow. Just like that. Just like that. And the real reason was because you wanted to travel. I wanted to, yeah, try, I want some adventure. Adventure, yeah. And I was nonconformist. All my life I was nonconformist. <laughs> In the military. Right. <laughs> when other kids wanted to be firemen or, or policemen, I wanted to be a cabinet maker or I wanted to be some other thing that I can't say on national television. <laughs> and uh, the reason for that was every year in San Francisco, uh, right by the waterfront, there was a lot of um, uh, areas where they had lumber yards. And the lumber yards, primarily, they made boxes, you know, wood boxes. They weren't these cardboard boxes. And they had these, uh, and they had no, no fences around these uh, lumber yards. So if you wanted to build something, a treehouse, whatever, 
you go there at night, just take what you wanted, you know, you had wood. <laughs> so, uh, Five I... Five finger discount. Right. It was, everything was free after 12 o'clock. <laughs> and we used to go down and get this stuff. Now, Twelve midnight. Yeah, midnight. Yeah. <laughs> midnight, uh, what it was that they say, midnight, uh, not express, but midnight, uh, something to do with selling stuff. Anyway. Yeah. So, anyway, we'd go down there and, uh, and I... We'd go down there and, and we built all these uh, every year, every year, calendar year, every few months, there was something we did. By that I mean we had kite season, we made our own kites. We had um, uh, these, uh, these I forget what they call them, um, these gadgets you hit on the ground and they spin around, tops. Tops. We yeah. had tops yeah. and we played one against the other who could win and then we had... Uh, we make our own. Um, uh, we couldn't afford to buy metal. Uh, uh, what do you call those things? They made that movie with that kid with the with the with the uh, what's his name? Uh, it comes out every Christmas time. Oh yeah, the, Red Rider. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The Red Rider. So we had to make our own the, wagon. We the told Christmas story. Right. We yeah. We had to make our own wagons. And what we did, we we'd always rob our neighbors' houses to get the ironing boards. Because the iron boards were made out of wood, and they already came in the front pointed. So what was to do? Go to the lumber yard, get a two by four, get a two by this, put it in the back, put it in the front. Then we put rope, so we we're able to turn this and go down North Beach's hills. We must be going down at 40, 50 miles an hour. But they're steep. But in them, them days, there wasn't many cars. Not many cars. So we'd set these kids down there at the intersection, and if they saw a car coming. The only alternative we had, the only alternative we had, was to get our our wagons and hit them against the curb, or stand up and let them go on their own. It was dangerous, but we didn't think so. And that's one of the things we did. Then for wheels, uh, our older siblings used to have ice skates made out of metal, metal, and they would use those for the wheels. Then we found out we can go to the scavengers where they repaired their big trucks where the scavengers come up pick up the garbage. And they, they didn't mind. We'd go in there and we used to get ball bearings. Real good ball bearings, but they couldn't use them in their equipment because they were old and everything. We put the, the, the small ones in the front, the big ones in the back, and then we got creative. We used to get their steering wheels. So then we had steering wheels. And then we made our own brakes. We put a piece of wood under this board with leather straps as hinges, and we go to the shoemakers and get old heels, rubber heels, and put them on there, and these were our brakes. See, we never bought anything. Everything never we had to buy anything. No. You made yeah. it by, by You made everything yourself. yourself. Yeah. And that, I thought, was very creative. Well, then I, when I got older at 15, I got, you know, little kids do this. I want more, something more exciting. Well, my relatives owned uh, fishing boats, and we'd go down to uh, Fisherman's Wharf, and they had their boats berthed right there. And when they weren't using them, we'd go down and play pirates. None of us knew how to swim. None of us knew how to swim, but that didn't scare us. So we'd go up the mast, and we'd play pirates, and we'd fall off and hang on for dear life. But underneath, where the, where the tourists and the people used to walk, the people that owned fishing boats used to put their crab nets under there, their skiffs, and our, their equipment underneath. And high tide, the water used to come there and deposit all the garbage from San Francisco's war, uh, uh, wharf, and it was filthy, it was filthy. You could find everything in there. But then when the tide came out, they would leave deposits of all kinds of stuff there uh, Coca-Cola bottles, Pepsi-Cola bottles, and we get them and take them in and get two cents. So we were like industrials at the time. <laughs> we had a, a money source because our parents couldn't give us any money. Yeah. Yeah. So we go there and get that. Then we used to go down into uh, the one section, the Embarcadero. Now it's all built up for hotels or whatever. And the Navy ships used to come in. And we'd go down there and we'd say, you got any old clothes? And they would throw us their old hats. Or, or something that they couldn't wear anymore because it's got holes in it. 
And I used to see those guys, and I said, God, I, I like to do something like that, you know. And I said, you know, I didn't know when the hell they went, you know, these ships. Anyway, so I sort of liked that. And uh, not only when we went down there, that was also the section where they had the markets, the vegetable markets. And uh, we leave house in the morning about six o'clock in, in uh, summertime. And we wouldn't come back till about five o'clock to have dinner. And we ate by going to the, grabbing this from Fisherman's Wharf, a shrimp or something, going to farmer's market, getting vegetables. Then we go up this hill and they had in, on the side of the hill was Telegraph Hill with these beautiful, fabulous buildings. We thought there, you had to be a millionaire to live there, you know. And uh, we go up there and he had these inventions on the side of, the, uh, of these cliffs and we called them caves. But they only were enough where we could just go in there and we cooked potatoes and all the stuff that we stole. <laughs> that's what we used to do. And then we'd go down to another section of the waterfront where they had these big, huge warehouses that were, where they had um, people would bring, companies would put, store their food in there. And they had these big ice uh, uh, set up in there. And that's how it kept the food you know, cold so it wouldn't spoil. And then when the ice got uh, old, they would, they would refrigerate new ice. And right by the loading dock, they would dump this ice. So the ice was against the loading dock. And we, born and raised, we didn't know what the hell snow was, but we thought that was snow. <laughs> so we made these slats out of old wine barrel slats. And we'd ski down this goddamn Slide ice. Down there, yeah, yeah, yeah. we thought we were in the snow. Nice. And the point I'm trying to make is we did our own thing. We yeah. never had to worry yeah. about someone buying us something. We always had something to do. Yeah. And so, also down where they, uh, the box factories were, they had a lot of sawdust there. Big piles of sawdust. Some were almost a story high. So when nobody was around, we go up to where the sawdust came out, and we jump in the sawdust, and that was dangerous. <laughs> if we get in there, we don't know what the hell. Wow! So finally you they suffocated. Right, you'd suffocate. Yeah. So finally they put a, a fence around yeah. that with signs. Yeah. And then part of that area, which was still industrial, every year they used to have a carnival come there. Every year, and it's not the carnival you go. Or, or uh, like you go to the cow palace now, it was a raunchy one. And in the carnival, they had a lot of uh, uh, gypsies who used to work there, gypsy women. And they wore these um, uh, dark, we call it silk, but these uh, long dresses and blouses. And they, they weren't that pretty, you know. Well, gypsies came from India, actually. And. Uh, so we used to sneak into the shows and everything, but we had to go through where these people lived, where these gypsies lived, and we get in free. So we did that, never got caught. <laughs> so this one time, we got caught by these gypsies. are always clever, right? Yeah, these gypsy women caught us. Well, she let my friends go. And I don't know why she got me, but I had hair then, blonde hair. <laughs> I had green eyes, and I still have green eyes. I didn't look Italian. Had light skin, she took a likeling to me, and uh, I went along with the ride. She didn't turn me in or nothing. And then the next thing I know, uh, I, you know, I don't know if you'll believe this or not. I was about nine years old. I said, I think she seduced me. <laughs> and and they said, Well, how do you know that? I said, Well, uh, she took me here in the back, and I had this feeling I never had before. <laughs> come through my body <laughs> and it was the truth that was the first time that happened the second time one of my neighbor's girlfriends did it to me in the back of a painter's truck women taking advantage yeah, of you all, poor, all my poor life. little guy yeah, little guy yeah blonde hair green blonde eyes. Hair, blue eyes yeah not italian looking you know <laughs> so that was that so then i end up going in the navy yeah so the navy I Boot thought, camp, well, San Diego. Well, the Navy was going to make a man out of me. You know, I wasn't going to be able to get smart and do all these things. All right, I said, fine. So I went down to San Diego, took the Southern Pacific train right off of Third Street, 
and there was a lot of other parents there. Their kids were going down there, and some came from California, and some came all the way across the country. They were there. Okie, we call them Okies because they weren't from San Francisco. Anybody who wasn't born in California was an Okie. And so anyway, got to San Diego, had to take another test. I went down there in my civilian clothes. That uh, suit I went down there with belonged to my brother when he went in the Navy. And we had friends where my dad used to work in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco, <laughs> which was a sporting part of town then, uh -huh. gambling and, you know. Okay. And so they tailored it for me, so I went down there, and some of these other guys, they would say, this is the first time I ever had my, 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 my slippers. I said, I didn't get any these slippers. They, they give you all these different clothes, you know. Slippers to men were dress shoes. That's what oh, they called. Okay. Right. They yeah. called their pants britches. We called them pants. Yeah. So these Okies from different states had their own vocabulary. Uh, Lefty Frizzell was their famous a hillbilly singer. Like ours was Sinatra and all these other guys, you know. So anyway, went to training. I was the shortest guy in the company, company, uh, company 49. And in the military, the tallest guy's in the front. And the little guy is the last guy in the line. In the Navy, every place we went, if we went to eat, to get up to the mess hall, we marched. If we went to some class, we marched. We went to the firing range, we marched. Everything, you had to march. Well, these guys were over six foot something, and they had a different stride. I had to run to keep up with these guys. And I'd say, slow down, slow down, and they would finally slow down. Man, I went to bed that night, I was so tired, I went to bed, one of the first ones to go to bed, I was worn out. Okay, got through that, and then everything they did, I had to do, and I did it. And, and the average age of these guys, they were in their 20s. 21, 22. There was another kid that was 18, but I was the youngest. And they used to make us stand what they call what? A watch. For two hours every night, you'd have to stay awake inside the barracks to make sure no fire or anything. The other guy had to stay outside on the clothesline, make sure no one stole your clothes. <laughs> this was only to indoctrinate you that you had to work as a unit. Mm. That you, weren't, that you weren't on your own. An individual. Right. Yeah. Individual. Right? Yeah. So that was okay. Many times I'm there at night, two o'clock in the morning, and I can hear these guys crying for mommy. Wow. For mommy. Joe had the same thing happen when he went in the army. Wow. They were crying for mommy, and they would wet their beds. And the thing is, if you wet your bed, you had a, a physical problem, and they would discharge you. But a lot of these guys just wanted to get out. Oh, okay. These were all volunteers. They weren't drafted. We yeah. were all volunteers. So they would pee at their bed yeah. on purpose. Well, on purpose. Out. And they didn't like. They didn't think. I don't know what the hell they were thinking, but it wasn't uh, like it was in the movies, like McHale's Navy. And uh, but then what they used to do, it was my job or was ever uh, on watch. Every hour on the hour, we'd wake them up and march them to the toilets. <laughs> <laughs> and, they, and we have to sit there like an idiot and watch some guy do their thing and then go back. Wow. So they wouldn't think they were going to get discharged and go back to mama. That's another thing that I, uh, I first uh, saw that I thought was unusual, you know. But anyway, to make a long story short, after uh, I think it was uh, like three months of training, uh, we took another test and uh, they give you this baloney in the Navy. Uh, you take a test, and if you qualify high, that means you can go on di a different ship, or you can go to school and learn something, okay? I never got that, I just passed. And uh, so after uh, uh, the training, they gave us, I think, 12 days leave, and then from San Diego, I came, I came home, stayed home, went back, and I didn't come home again for three years, four years later. I was always overseas. Wow. And my first duty was Guam. Guam. Uh, yeah. Organic yeah, Guam. exactly. So yeah. for you guys that don't know, I lived in Guam for about a year and a half, and <laughs> Vince was, told me some of the stories that could totally relate to you. Yeah, well, they had water hours when I was there. Water hours. They didn't have ice cream. We still drank uh, powdered milk. 
powdered, uh, all kinds of powdered things. There was nothing out there for a guy 17 years old looking for adventure. You know what I mean? <laughs> every year we had our typhoons. Every year. And the one typhoon that I remember was that uh, I was stationed at this place called Camp Bright, and that was a supply uh, uh, place where they had parts for every ship in the Seventh Fleet, replacement parts. And that's where I, I my duty was. But we lived in a Quonset hut, and it was about about eight, eight of us living in one little Quonset hut. Now, if you don't know what a Quonset hut is, it's one of those things that had a, a metal uh, thing over it, no windows, they had a screen, plywood floor, and over the metal on the top, they had a real uh, big um, uh, braided uh, uh, rope made out of metal, two of them, one in the front and one in the back, and they ended up going in concrete on both sides of the coincidence. If you didn't have that, the typhoon would blow it away. Okay? And that's what they had. So we had a, a typhoon, and we couldn't go back to our barracks because they couldn't take us on the highway. And what they used for transportation were these uh, Rio trucks that had state, uh, state beds on them on the side. They were, you know, commercial trucks. We'd hold on to them, and they would take us back and forth. Well, while we were there, the, the typhoon, we ended up in, in the middle of the typhoon, so we couldn't, we couldn't go in the eye of the typhoon. So we had to stay there. We had to sleep there overnight. So we slept in these big uh, packing crates that they used to use the, the stuff, the parts, before they shipped them all over the Pacific. And it, to, to, to me, it was a, another little adventure, no big deal. But in the morning, we had to go back and to our barracks because we had a shower and everything. But then as we were going down, we only had one road, uh, uh, Marine Drive. Yeah, it's called Marine, Marine Drive. Yeah. So we go on Marine Drive and we see telephone poles there with these 12 foot pieces of corrugated roofing wrapped around them like a wet rag. And we were in the bigger buildings and we didn't get that. So we, you know, we didn't get, so anyway, before we went there, we had to go to the Marine Barracks and go to their chow hall, because it wasn't damaged. And my tour of duty was 18 months. I was almost at the end, all right? So I'm uh, going to the mess hall, and there's other people are going to the, coming out of the mess hall, and a lot of them were Marines. You know, they had different uniforms. And I'm just looking, and I hear this guy, hey, Kukulikyo. I thought I was hearing things. I thought I was going mad. Who in the hell knows me that well on this godforsaken island, what, four or five thousand miles from, from Godsend on this island? And it was this Puerto Rican kid I went to school with in Portland, from the Bayview District in San Francisco. And he was Puerto Rican descent. His name was Rico Custodio. He was in the Marines. And he spotted me there. So I said, where are you at? And he told me where to go. All right, I said, fine, I'll see you, I'll see you. And uh, so that Saturday, we didn't work Saturday and Sunday. I didn't work anyway, but we didn't work Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> so I had my dungarees on, bell-bottom dungarees, uh, a dungaree shirt, the sleeves cut off, and I had these army shoes that when these big Quonset uh, huts used to get damaged and they would leak, if one box, got damaged, they'd survey the whole damn place. It was easy to do that way. Yeah. So when you went to the mess hall, they had boxes, cigar, anything. And they had these shoes there. So everybody got the shoes and they tailored them down to fit their feet. They were boondocking shoes. That's what I had. So I go there where he said I had a hitchhike. There's no buses, but there's a lot of military people going back and forth, right? So I get there and I, I see the Marine guard. He's on duty, all right? He's got a belt, he's got the brass eyelets, polished. He's got a 45, his 45 is encased, Marine Condover holster. His shirt has all been pleated. He looks like he come out of a, some window of a, a, you know, a recruiting station. So I go up to him and I says, uh, 
Hi, I says, I, I just found out a friend of mine lives here. I, uh, can I go see him? And he says, uh, what's his name? I said, Rico Custodio. Oh, yeah, I know Rico. I said, well, where's he at? He says, you can't go in. I said, what the hell? I got uh, some germs or something? I said, what do you mean? I can't? He says, you're out of uniform. On Guam, out of uniform. I said, what do you mean? Go back to the uniform of the day. We had to wear white uniforms. That was our uniform of the day. And we had to square our hat. I had a hitch bike all the way back. I lost half the day. By the time I got there, there was somebody else on duty. You know, and I was all, you know, all broken. He let me in. He told me, go into the, they call it the day room. Or the Army and the Marines have what they call a day room. Which not where they sleep, where they, like a lounge. And he says, go down there. He'll be in that area. So I go in there. And uh, there's a couple other Marines there. And uh, I said, uh, you know Rico? Because, oh yeah, we know Rico. He'll be out here in a minute. I said, okay, thanks. But they were having some kind of an inspection. These, some other part of the, the base. And the officers were there. They had a three-way mirror where they could see every part of your uniform. And it had to be perfect. Then they had their backpack. That had to be perfect. So finally, when I was able to go see Rico, he had his bunk, his canteen was there, his rifle was there, and a split second, he was ready to go. And that's how strict they were. Anyway, make a long story short, he says, you know, he says, uh, Everett Johnson's out here too. I met him one time. I said, Everett Johnson, the guy that we went to Balboa with? He said, <laughs> he said yeah. <coughs> and he's, uh, he belongs to this... Um, the other side of the island, that when airplanes went down, you know, they would go and save them. It was something like a PT boat. So that's where their base was. So we finally hitchhiked, got there. And this guy was like Mikhail's Navy. They, had, they, they cooked their own food. They, had, they did everything they wanted. So uh, Guam was divided between the Army, the Air Force, the Marines, and the Navy. What I mean by that, if you went for get a beer, you only went where the Navy guys were, this, that competition like. So he said, I know a good place we, where we can go. So he took us to this, this, uh, it's only service, uh, beer. In the Navy, if you were 17, you could drink beer, but you couldn't drink hard liquor, all the beer you wanted. So we went there, well, make a long story short, we all got snuckered, talking about the old days and everything, and well, we had to go back. And, like I say, he lived right there. He just went to his, wherever he was, and that was it. So, uh, Custodian and I, we had a hitchhike. Well, we both got back to where we were stationed over the time limit. But his had a guard at the gate. He had a gate around him. So he got in trouble. I didn't. We didn't. We had a place we were supposed to go in, but I went about a mile away and jumped over the fence. And it, they didn't do anything to me. So that's what happened. And he was on the island. He was in the Navy like me. It was 18 months. And I never seen him. And Rico was almost two years. Yeah. And I didn't see him. But that time you guys saw each other. Right. And so, at the end. Yeah, at the end. <laughs> and uh, I remember uh, just from over the years and knowing you always talked about how small this world is. Yeah, this is. And small. how you'd yeah. be on a cruise ship and you would run into somebody. Zenny yeah, and I. Yeah, synchronistically. Yeah. Just random. Especially in the Bay Area. Yeah. Bay Area. Now there's this one lady. She's in here. And her name is La Giudici. It's an Italian name. And uh, her son's living with her now, and she used to be the, the wife of my barber's uh, son. Lived in San Carlos, a half a block away from my brother lived. Wow. Okay? Yeah. And then one time, we're getting off the ship, Lenny and I. So what they were doing, we're in San Francisco, if I remember. They would let the people have to make connections to the airport or whatever, get off first. So we're sitting on the stairs, and this lady comes by that you knew that lived a couple blocks away from your sister's house. And we never saw her on the ship. Never seen her. Never. And she was on the ship. And that's another, if you're from the Bay Area, you're going to see somebody one way or the other. Somewhere in the world. Well, yeah, yeah. in the world. Yeah. So, so that was that.
You have a lot of stories, brother. Well, I got a lot of them, but I don't think the statute of limitations is over yet. But anyway. We're going to have to wrap up. The what? We're going to have to wrap up. Yeah, okay. The, the, the best part was, even though I ended up on a ship that carried aviation gasoline and oil, it was in a tanker. It wasn't one of the fancy ships of the Navy. It was a working ship. We did hit some good ports, and I uh, my dream came true. Uh, going back to the movies where the pirates used to come in and do their had their women on their lap and doing all this so that part came true So I'm not <laughs> too much disappointed And I never did learn how to swim. Yeah, so I was gonna say never learned <laughs> that how to was surf. another story Somehow you got out of that in the right. Navy in the Navy you right went over oceans and oh, did went, not know how to, to swim Yeah, went to Philippines Japan China but then I look back, a, a 22 bullet or a firecracker would have blew that ship to hell and they never found me anyway. Wow. But, and, the, and the sad part was, this I don't understand. We had to learn how to swim. We used to go for lessons, but we did not wear a bathing suit. We had to go in the nude. That's so I weird. can never understand That's that. That's weird. And we had to go at night. Wow. San Diego in February, you froze in the, mor in, oh, yeah. in the morning, then you die in the afternoon. It was so hot. Yeah. And I was a little shrimp. How embarrassed I was to go in the deep end and they threw me in and I was fighting for my life for the bamboo. <laughs> and I never did learn. Were you ever scared during the war? No, like, no. Like on the boats? No, no, no. And the reason for that is I was, I was when you're young, you know, you're going to live forever. Nothing yeah, bad. no, it's and I, And I, I was, I'm not bragging, but I, we were in hairy situations. We were in, uh, when the Marines got the crap knocked out of them, we had to go in there and help the, get some of these, you know, uh, off the beach and all that. And we never could go in the port. We had to anchor out and we'd get blown up. And uh, this is my last story. Uh, my ship ended up in Pearl Harbor and we had to get some work done on the bottom of the ship. So they put us in dry dock and dry dock you go in, it's full of water, they let the water out and they got this big uh, thing to hold you up and you went into the water and it was dry. So the, uh, the uh, uh, civilian uh, workers in the shipyard would take care of everything. Anyway, I worked in the uh, boiler room and it was hot. Oh, it was constantly hot, really hot. And uh, I used to put my body under the only one fan we had, but it was hot air, not cool air. And uh, so consequently, I, I got this rash uh, on my pee pee. And I thought it was VD. <laughs> I really thought it was VD. So I turned myself into sick bay. That's the equivalent of going to a, a, a nurse's aid station or something. We had no doctors on this ship. We just had a, a corpsman. And he looked at it and says, oh, he says, that's herpes. I said, herpes? I've heard of herpes, uh, of venereal herpes. He said, no, that's herpes something. He says, you get that from uh, uh, it's prickly heat, in other words. And I said, well, what do I got to do? He says, well, he says, you're not circumcised. I said, no. I said, my, my folks couldn't afford it. <laughs> <laughs> so he sent me to Army Tripler Hospital. A beautiful, right there in Pearl Harbor, right up in Honolulu, right up there in the hill. It looked like a resort. They had escalators in there, it had all the food you wanted, had a snack bar, had everything. So I ended up going in there, but the Marines were getting the crap knocked out of them. And so the only uh, place that was uh, open to us guys, okay, open to us guys, was, uh, was the, uh, uh, the prison where the prisoners used to go and so I went there and I got circumcised and the embarrassment part was all the nurses were officers and every morning I'd have to show my little dinghy and in the morning most men you know they have to go to the bathroom you got what they call a pee pee something <laughs> so anyway she'd had this pencil and this thing with my record and she'd see that with the pencil she'd go bing and, <laughs> I think it was okay. But while I was there, I picked up Life magazine, and there's my friend, one of my gang from the Bayview, a Marine who was from Hawaii, and came to San Francisco, lived in, in the uh, Bayview, and his father was a famous artist. He had joined the Marines, and uh, out of uh, his platoon, they all got killed but him, wow. and he survived.
Nine. And they were asking him questions, and he they asked him, well, you'd like to go back to the States, to San Diego, and be a DI. Dill instruction, no, I want to stay here with my men. He, he survived. Cool. And I've never been able to get in contact with that guy. It would guy. have been great to hear his story. Yeah. Wow. The last I heard, he was working with some company, something to do with women's products, you know, like... Uh, that women use and stuff like that. And I looked every telephone book around here, I can't find his name. Uh, He'd be my age, I don't even know if yeah, he's alive. Yeah, it'd yeah. be cool to yeah. see if we could find him. Yeah. But Vinny. Anyway, that's it. Thank you so that's much. That's only part man. of it. Part, <laughs> no, part we're going to have to interview you again. <laughs> I can't wait to then have you back. Then what happened up here? <laughs> you have so many stories. Oh, yes, I do. Keep going and... Yeah. Um, We'll definitely have you back on the show. All right. And I don't work for money. I just work for champagne. <laughs> right. We'll definitely give you some champagne for sure. <laughs> right. Thank you, Mr. Kukulikio. Yeah, okay. Nice knowing you guys. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Yeah. And, uh,